0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: We're attracted to people who are familiar to us. So we have all this unconscious material that makes someone unconsciously suitable to be a mate. So if you haven't looked in the unconscious place, if you haven't done a lot of therapy to get that up and out, you will have what I call, you'll repeat a reality, or it's called repeating realities, Mm -hmm. where even if you don't consciously, actively, intentionally choose something different, your default position will most likely be whatever is in your unconscious mind. So if your parents had a crappy marriage, and let's say love, right, and pain, you know, went like this, I'm, my hands are like coming together, right? I'm making them be intertwined. Then you would end up repeating that in some form or fashion. I waited to get married until I was about 35.
2: Hmm.
1: My husband was our 40, almost 40. We were, I was 34. He was 44 when we got married and we both had a ton of therapy prior to that. So I think the, you know, how I avoided being in a relationship like my parents marriage which wasn't wasn't abusive it just wasn't happy it just sure. looked terrible i was yeah. like wow i'd rather be single than have that you know mm-hmm. i was able to consciously in therapy not repeat that so i got that unconscious material up and out
3: introduced to you by way of danielle Laporte, who is probably the only person to have appeared on our show four times and i figure (laughs) if she referred to you you had to be phenomenal uh so i want to start by asking you given that in a lot of ways i see your work as the work of a social scientist what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact has that ended up having on your life your career and the work that you do today
1: Wow, that's let's just go right in. Let's just go right, right, right for it. We're drilling down. Well, it was a combination of social groups because I was a, a cheerleader and like a popular girl. Let's just say,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I was also an empath, which I've always been. So I, I was friends with everyone. And I also always stood up for the underdog, would fight with people who were picking on the weaker people in the tribe, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would never fight for my, you know, I I never had any fights myself, but I I really couldn't deal with injustice and those types of things. And I think that all of that impacted, all of those experiences impacted my life because I continued to, although I had, I did other things before I became a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. But becoming a psychotherapist was certainly informed by being very in touch with other people's feelings all of my life and wanting people to be embodied in their, um, their power. Do you know what I mean? When I saw somebody not doing that, I wanted to say, hey, you know, you, you can actually stand up to this person or you can change what's not working in your life, even as a young kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the belonging piece in talking about, and when I say popular, I mean, I had my group. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I was the homecoming queen, but I certainly felt confident and comfortable and I wasn't bullied when I was younger and I didn't bully anyone else either, Mm -hmm. but I did have, I do have the same group of friends that I've had since I was about four years old. Which well, I think is probably pretty rare.
3: That is pretty rare. So I, I have to ask you in more detail about that. Um, two things. One, having such a close-knit group of friends uh, since you were you know four years old, what has that taught you about you know relationships and, and relating and social dynamics? And two, what did, what was what was the experience of being pop? what did the experience of being popular teach you about um, being liked by other people?
1: Mm. Well, I'll go back to my yayas, as I call them. So my girlfriends for all these decades, it really having a relationship with, there's actually seven of us, um, Uh now having a relationship with people over decades of time through the, the thick and thin, through the good and bad, through the periods of time where you almost didn't want to be friends anymore because you changed so much, but then coming back together, it's like the, the, um, the lesson is about, I think, forgiveness and about if you are committed to something, because all of us are are expressly committed to this friendship, our friendship, this organization of this little tribe, mm-hmm. that things will eventually work out if no one leaves, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I say the same when I used to counsel couples, you know, people will say, well, what is the um, you know, what is the key to a happy marriage, you know, and I was like, well, first thing is make the agreement that no one's going to leave and then try to follow through with that, you know, which sounds very basic or maybe even flippant, but yeah. it's true that do you have an understanding, whether it's in friendship or in marriage, that, you know, we have this commitment to each other that for me, I'm incredibly loyal. It's a really important quality and other people in my life to me. And, you know, if I mean, you know, I'm in it till the end most of the time. You know what I mean? I know what that looks like. I know how to do that. I've been very happily married for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's about sticking it out and knowing that you're going to go through periods of time where you're like, oh, I can't even stand this person. Mm-hmm. But I really love them. And I know that love ebbs and flows. And so I'm willing to sort of ride out the storms of relationships. Mm
2: hmm
3: and what about uh, being pop? what did being popular teach you about being liked by other people?
2: Uh, I
1: don't know. I think that the being liked by other people for me started younger because I was, the way that I was raised, I was the fourth daughter. I had three older sisters and there was a bit of an age difference between me and the next oldest one. So there was like three in a row and then only almost three years between me and my next oldest sister.
2: Uh-huh.
1: But it was still enough space that like everybody was happy I was there like all my sisters loved me I didn't I didn't really have that experience of um sibling rivalry or not that not that I knew of and they say they they didn't feel that way I wasn't supposed to be born my mother I was my mother's fourth cesarean section during a time period when they really did not recommend you having even more than two back then, because they used to slice you from basically right down the middle of your body, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there was all these stories or this folklore that I grew up believing or knowing. I mean, it informs you whether it's true or not, you know, that I was special and that I was, you know, there'd be no reason someone wouldn't like me and not, not in a conceited way. Not like I didn't think I was better than other people. Right. I just, by the way that my mother, especially my mother treated me, Uh there was, um, you know, she always took the time. I remember probably my earliest memories or of my mother bending all the way down. I was probably two, and her looking me right in the face and being like, Wait, you, you do you do want that. You wanna do that? You don't want to you don't want to wear that? It's scratchy? Okay, you don't have to wear it. Like maybe it sounds indulgent to describe it that way, mm-hmm. but but what came from it for me is that I grew up with this self worth
2: mm-hmm.
1: that says that what I think matters and how I feel matters and not more than other people, but certainly as much as other people.
3: Mm -hmm. So, a couple of questions come from that. Um, One, you know, there are a lot of parents listening to this. Uh, Mm -hmm. What would you tell them about self-worth when it comes to their kids? And for those of us who didn't grow up with this sort of reaffirmed sense of self-worth, how have you seen it change in adult life for people and the people that you've worked with?
1: Uh, Well, for the parents... You know, what I see today a lot with parenting is this over-involvement and this desire to be friends with your kids and to have them think you're cool and all of these things, which just isn't parenting or doesn't really work because there comes the separation and individuation. You know, this is their developmental duty, right, to individuate from the parents to become their own person. And if the parent isn't aware of that and won't help them do it right you know that why why do kids why do teenagers act like idiots why why do they have disdain why do they think you don't know anything suddenly you're just suddenly you're just so uncool it's because separating and individuating is so painful that what they need to propel them to do it is anger and so this is all the rejecting of the parents at that time and the, I remember one of my teenage sons at the time saying You and dad are so corny. You always call each other babe. So gross. Like, (laughs) I was like, okay, is it really gross? Well, fine. I was happy to be uncool. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't feel like I wanted to be friends because that's not the uh, parents are not friends, parents are parents. So that's the first thing about Mm self-esteem is let it be about the kid. And I don't mean so much about the kid. That you're forcing them to learn, you know, Chinese when they're two years old or right. that you're putting all this pressure on them that they have to um, achieve, achieve, achieve.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I just mean when you talk to children, talk about what they're interested in. Let them talk about themselves without you bringing it back to you. Oh, yeah, when I was your age, like become athle- an athletic listener with your kids. If you want to know what's going on with them, right. ask them questions like, well, is there more you want to say about that? Oh, what happened with that? Tell me more about that. Because I think that creating space for kids to learn, to make mistakes, to fail, normalizing this process of failing, instead of you have parents who are actually doing homework for kids, handing in reports. I mean, that's just the way that I was raised and in my own mind, that's just so unheard of. It's like you are robbing the child of the lessons that messing up in life gives us if you don't let them, if there's no consequences, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's really about the parents' insecurity and fear if they feel compelled to do that. You got to let kids fail. Mm -hmm. How will they know that they can succeed if you don't? And then you help them learn what what there is to learn. You know, I always say that there's, you know, even with clients, like in every crap stew, you know, there's definitely some gems, but you got to be willing to get your hands dirty to find them, you know?
3: Yeah. How do parents damage self-esteem?
1: Ugh, in a million ways: shaming, guilting, um, belittling, neglect, abuse—like um, straight-up abuse. Like straight up abuse um, addiction. Kids growing up in a chaotic system because what—and the chaotic system could be anything—from physical abuse to neglect to drug addiction to alcoholism to poverty, even like you know where the parents can't provide you know, food for you to actually live. This is a chaotic system. And a child will internalize that as if I were better, my father would stop hitting me. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: If I were more perfect, my, you know, mother would stop shooting heroin or whatever it is, because it's so painful. The, the, The alternative, like your mind, the child's mind won't even let them go to the alternative, which is that it's not your fault, right? You have to make it your fault as a kid to be able to deal with it mm-hmm. because it gives you the illusion that you have some control over something. Yeah. But if you, you know, had to look at the, you know, the bold truth, it's how, how can you build self-esteem and a chaotic system where people are not valuing you?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're being devalued, even if it's because of addiction. An eight year old can't make that distinction. Yeah, They just know that the mother kept forgetting to pick them up from school. Mm-hmm. How unimportant do you feel if your parent forgets about you?
3: So, um, the idea that it, it, you know, that something is your fault is something that I personally have wrestled with a lot, even in adult life. Like anytime something doesn't go my way, I always think I'm the one to blame for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, um, in the work that you've seen, you know, uh, that you've done with people, um, who've, you know, I mean, I can tell you that I, I didn't grow up in the easiest environment, you know, my mom and I butted heads a lot. She wasn't perfect. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is what it is. Like I've gotten over it to some degree, but I know that it's had an impact. Like it, it's Mm -hmm. impacted a lot of the things in my adult life. Um, and I'm I'm curious, how do people undo, um, the damage that is done to self-worth from childhood when they're in adulthood? How have you helped them undo it in your work?
1: Well, what I've seen work is doing something in your life. Mm -hmm. like, When people are ambitious and they're willing to become an expert at something or they're willing to do something that makes them feel good, even if it's volunteering, like actually doing something that is tangible, that you can say, you know, I helped build that garden in the Lower East Side or whatever it may be. These are small things that we can do that actually raise our self-esteem. But so much of it, honestly, is about reparenting. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to have compassion. And sort of process the ways that your younger self kind of got the raw end of the stick, as we all did. Now, I, I tell you a nice story about my mother, and that yeah. doesn't mean that she didn't make a million and 17 mistakes <laughs> that I needed to undo yeah. in my 30 years of my own personal therapy that I've been in. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, part of it is being curious about why you are the way you are and getting your butt into therapy and working. I don't mean you, obviously, personally. Sure. I just mean in general. People being curious about, wow, I don't like the way that I feel when I'm in a group of people. I don't like that I feel insecure to speak in public. I don't like that um, I'm a social chameleon. And when I'm with this group of people, I sort of agree with them. And when I'm in that group of people, I sort of agree with them. I don't want, I remember saying to my therapist when I was in college, I stopped drinking when I was about 22 years old, after drinking a lot between the ages of like 12 and 22. So it was like a decade of just bad and then just stopped. And I remember, um, and I was t- talking to her about something. Oh, oh I, I'd lied about something. I, I, I was late for work. And I said, uh, I, w- I went to college on Long Island. And I said, I told them I had a flat tire. That's why I was going to be late. And then she just said, plain as day to my face, okay. So now we've established that you're a person who lies. And I was like, uh, what, what? I am? And she was like, well, yeah. So you just said that instead of taking responsibility for what actually happened, And then just letting the chips fall where they may, maybe they would have been mad. You decided that it was your right to lie to avoid that consequence. And I was like, okay, well, I don't want to be someone who lies. She's like, okay, well, then let's work on that. But it was that type of a thing where you become someone who keeps their word Mm -hmm. to yourself and to others, someone that you can count on to not abandon you when the going gets rough because you will stand up for yourself, you will speak the truth and all of that comes through, you know, it takes time, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I say, and you know, because I'm a therapist of course and that's what's worked for me in my life, I'm sure there's a million things that people can do to get themselves to that point, maybe outward bound for three years or the Peace Corps or I don't know what, but for me, staying in my actual life therapy was the road to creating Real self-esteem.
3: Mm-hmm. So, walk me through uh, the trajectory of your career and how you got to where you're at today, and, and <laughs> what led to this. Because I know you said you know you had a career prior to this. So, I'm curious. You know, what were the, the significant inflection points that led you down this path?
2: Mm.
1: Wow, it's so funny. I really do feel, and this is not being like fake humility. I really do feel like. A lot of my life and career, it was there was a certain amount of luck that had to do with it. Of course, I was a hard worker, but I ended up getting into entertainment. I worked in the garment center for like a year and a half after college and hated it. Um, and then I just left and went to a friend of mine was working at a talent agency. She said, call in six your other job and come here for three days because this person's out. So I did that, nice and dishonest. (laughs) Speaking of lying, so I I didn't go into my work for three days and then got the job. So I started to become a talent agent in my early 20s, had no experience, and, you know, learned as I was going, loved it a lot, couldn't believe it was a job. I was like, wow, this is the most awesome thing ever. Um, And then got to the point in my career where, you know, I, I started becoming successful, leaving agencies, going to the next agency, making more money, more more responsibilities. And I was incredibly ambitious, um, partly because I always felt like I was, quote, unquote, perhaps born the wrong gender. My father had four daughters, and he really, I always thought really wanted a son. He was a major athlete. um, And I always felt like he had no idea how to have daughters like that was definitely evident. He had no idea how to have daughters. So I kind of feel like I had this unconscious uh, drive to sort of prove him Wrong, Or that I would be as successful or more so than any stupid son he could have had. So there was certainly something not super healthy driving my, um, my ambition, but I was certainly was ambitious. And so by the time I was in my, I would say my early 30s, I was running a talent agency that was bi-coastal. And I kept thinking that the next job or the next amount of money was going to make me feel the way I wanted to feel. And speaking of Danielle Laporte, if I had just read the Friggin' Desire Map, if she had written it twenty years ago or thirty years ago, yeah. that would have really saved me some time in the you know, in the entertainment industry. Um, because really, nobody had taught me how to back into my goals with soul. I didn't know how to be like, well, how do I want to feel? Well, will this ever make me feel that way? If I had known to ask that question, I never would have been in the entertainment industry. <laughs> because the truth was that place, even though I, I had a lot of fun. Um, But ultimately, it is not a hotbed of mental health, as you can imagine. Mm. And so by the end, I was representing the last four years, I was representing supermodels, basically negotiating contracts with lawyers all day long. And it was a nightmare. It was just, you know, by the end of that, I was like, uh, okay, so there has to be something more valuable that I could be doing with my life, like my one and only precious, amazing, never going to happen again life this time around this just can't be it. Mm -hmm. And I really just quit my job. And I I applied to one grad school, NYU. I was like, wow, hope I get in. But I was also like, well, I'm not moving out of New York City to go somewhere else. I'm not going in Jersey. Like I only wanted to go to the NYU program because it was very clinical. And it really sets you up to have a private practice, which I knew that's what I was going to be doing. So I somehow managed to talk my way into NYU had an amazing experience. I continued to run that talent agency remotely, basically, from my phone for the whole entire time I was in grad school. With probably the owners not exactly knowing that that's what was happening, but we still got it all done. And then I did that for, you know, once once I was done with that, I, uh, I became a therapist. The second I graduated, the next day I took the test, passed, and hung up my shingle. And I was like, and open for business. So that's how I ended up as a therapist. But that's not really how I ended up here. Mm-hmm. You know, because I've been a therapist for almost 20 years. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot that changed along that path for me of really becoming a coach many years ago, knowing that, you know, I ended up having this niche market because of my experience in entertainment. I had a lot of celebrities as clients and that type of um People with those types of problems, right, like not everyone has to deal with what it means to be famous and not lose your mind, but famous people do. Mm -hmm. And they need someone who can tell them the truth about not believing the hype and about, you know, I, I used to call it the Elvis syndrome. Like, how do you not succumb to the Elvis syndrome where, you know, he was surrounded by all these yes men and women who didn't give a shit that he was about to die and was 400 pounds and, you know, completely addicted to all of these drugs, they were like, yeah, boss, looking good, you know, and it's really, it's a whole different world. So I, I sort of had this niche market that I still have with... That So I had clients. Once I became um, a coach, I had clients that I would travel with. Some I would go on tour with. Some I would, you know, I used to go to L.A. once a month for a week for like years until I was like, oh, my God, please stop. I do not want to take the red eye ever again. But that only stopped about two years ago.
3: Mm-hmm. So. You know, one of the things that really struck me that you said is is that you thought the next job, the next promotion, would make you feel the way that you want to feel, mm. um, and it's something that I, I've been thinking a lot about because uh, you know the. I had a very lengthy conversation with a friend yesterday about, you know, the fact that I was feeling down about certain things. And, and she said, you know, she's like, OK, what did you? She said, basically, there's a gap between what you expected your life to look like at this point and, you know, what it actually looks like. So that's mm. one thing. Um, and she's like, and that that gap is responsible for most of your misery. Um uh, <laughs> But why is it that we think that the these things that, you know, we think are going to make us feel better, like the next relationship or the next person or the next promotion? Why is that? I think we intellectually kind of know that, like every bit of social science research and happiness research points to the fact that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yet we still crave it.
1: Right. But it's because it's the way that we've been socialized. Yeah. And so part of it is it it takes a certain amount of um insight and seeking and searching and wanting to know that there's a different way right it took me you know I had my nose to the grindstone for almost a decade before I looked up and was like um, holy crap I hate this like I don't want to do this I feel like I'm a part of this misogynistic problem that's called you know supermodels and I don't I don't want to be a part of it but it took a really long time
2: mm-hmm.
1: of me continuing to pursue the, the, you know, this dream that I thought was going to create something. So uh, the same thing that you're talking about with what you were talking about with your friend. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I thought at this age, right, yeah. I would yeah. have this or have children or be married or own this or whatever it is that you thought was going to happen. Sure. And that part of the really liberating ourselves to embrace and enjoy the lives that we have made and that we have right now, right, because we can only build anything by being by being where we are in a real way. So I always will tell my clients that there sometimes we have to mourn the way that we thought it would be because it's a real thing, the way that you thought it would be. It's a real thing. When I I married a widower 20 years ago uh-huh. who had, you know, three young teenage sons. And even though I never felt like I needed to birth a child to be my, a human or myself, like I wasn't, that wasn't like my do all end all. I really, I I did have to go, okay, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought I would marry someone closer to my own age. My husband's 10 years older than me. I thought maybe we'd have one kid together, but now that's not going to happen. And so I felt so guilty. Like, I was so happy. I was so in love with my husband. I'm still so in love with my husband that my therapist had to walk me through. Like, Tara, it's normal. You know, you to. it's important that you mourn the way you thought it was going to be so that you can be fully present for the awesome way it is. You're not being, because I felt like I was being disloyal to my husband or being like ungrateful or something, like I couldn't figure out, like I felt like it was a bad thing that I felt that way. And she helped me really walk through it. So I'll always say to my clients, you know, how did you think it was going to be? Because a lot of times those quote unquote unfulfilled dreams Mm
2: -hmm.
1: really negatively impact, like can weigh down where you are right now. Mm -hmm. So it's about allowing yourself to be where you are and embrace where you are and still have whatever hope whatever desire it is but but don't have a strict way that it has to look right I always wanted a family but I didn't have a strict way that it had to look and the universe was like oh that's good because you're going to marry this widower and he's already got three kids so is that going to work I was like sure it's going to be great I think I mean it's going to be hard as hell for 10 years and then it's going to really be awesome Mm -hmm. (laughs)
3: Wow, okay. Um, <laughs> so many things. <laughs> yeah, so many things. So I want to spend the rest of our time really talking about the work that you do, um, specifically okay. around boundaries and love. And as I mentioned to you, I, I don't know what it is. It, maybe it's just my own seeking answers, but I seem to be talking to a lot of people about relationships and love lately. <laughs> um, that just seems to be what's showing up on my radar. And so I want to start on on you know the piece on love. Like, What is it that causes two people to fall in love based on your work? What causes it to not work out between people um, and what what sort of misperceptions do you think people have? Like one of the, the misperceptions that I feel was pretty much shattered by my own business partner. He's like, you have a Disney movie idealistic version of what meeting somebody is supposed to look like. And he's like, and that's bullshit. I was like, yep. OK, fair enough. So
1: <laughs> thanks. For <telling> anyways, <laughs>
3: um, multiple questions in one, which I'm sure you probably have lots to say about.
1: I uh, sure do. Well, how are we drawn to people? I mean, this is from my work. doing what I've been doing basically in the trenches for 20 years with people around love because I really am an expert on love and this is what I'm most interested in is love and boundaries, we're attracted to people who are familiar to us so we have all this unconscious material that makes someone unconsciously suitable to be a mate So if you haven't looked in the unconscious place, if you haven't done a lot of therapy to get that up and out, you will have what I call, you'll repeat a reality, or it's called repeating realities, where even if you don't consciously, actively, intentionally choose something different, your default position will most likely be whatever is in your unconscious mind. So if your parents had a crappy marriage, and let's say love, right, and pain, you know, went like this, I'm, my hands are like coming together, right? I'm making them be intertwined. Then you would end up repeating that in some form or fashion. I waited to get married until I was about 35.
2: Hmm.
1: My husband was our 40, almost 40. We were, I was 34. He was 44 when we got married. And we both had a ton of therapy prior to that. So I think the, you know, how I avoided being in a relationship like my parents marriage which wasn't wasn't abusive it just wasn't happy it just sure. looked terrible i was yeah. like wow i'd rather be single than have that you know mm-hmm. i was able to consciously in therapy not repeat that so i got that unconscious material up and out so with clients This is what I help them do, is basically, you know, I have all of these, a lot of questions, a lot of diving, a lot of delving in all of these um, courses that I do. So we, we repeat, you know, we uncover basically what is their downloaded love blueprint, I call it. Mm -hmm. And this brings into your conscious mind either things that maybe you've repressed or things that really have stayed unconscious about the way it was. In my own life, I had to consciously reject my mother's view of the way love is, because I didn't want that, which basically, and she wasn't a total male basher, but she was kind of like women are superior. You know, getting married is kind of like having a kid. I was like, oh, that sounds just terrible. Like I do not want to do that. And her message to me was always get an education and make your own money mm-hmm. so that at some point love can be a choice and not a need. Cause I think my mother, I know my mother felt very trapped she got pregnant in college, they got married, she dropped out, my father finished, and she always felt like, and she never went back to school. So for her, you know, marriage was like, end of my dreams happened right there, even though she always said we were the best thing that ever happened to her. And she still says that. But how I saw it was marriage equals end of your dreams, you know. So the repeating reality is if you're looking at how do people attract each other is that you are mirroring sort of most of the time you have mirrored childhood wounds. So that in the hopeful view on that is that you will have a chance to heal those things with this person Mm
2: -hmm.
1: my more realistic view on that is that without some kind of intervention or new skills right you're just going to repeat the same bad stuff and that's what's going to happen um i love harville and helen hendrix's work that they created a mago therapy i-m-a-g-o for couples and um it's just their stuff is so great. I interviewed them for my podcast years ago and I was like losing my mind, like a fangirling out like a weirdo. Like, "Oh my god, you guys have changed my life," you know. <laughs> yeah. They were like, "Oh, my." Anyway, I mean, they've been married 45 years. <laughs> um, anyway, I think I I think I I went long way around the barn, so can you help me get back to what yeah, I was supposed you know, to be talking I
3: mean, about? <laughs> I think really the question is what is it that causes people to be attracted to each other? Um, what what causes it not to work out? Uh, you know, Initially, I mean, like, and also, you know, what the the other part of that was this sort of idealized view that comes from, you know, Hollywood and movies and and Mm. how inaccurate is that?
1: Oh, it's so inaccurate. It's so inaccurate. And listen, we do have these hormones that are released when we're falling in love. That is like pulsating dopamine, dopamine in your brain. So we are high, like on love hormones so this is there's a truth in that so it's like we we become you know how can you explain the attraction you know and yet I've I had you know many long-term relationships before my husband you know five years seven years you know and the moment that that person was like hey I think we should move in together I'd be like oh I think we should break up like I knew I knew that was my sign to like get out of there, and with my husband. And I used to always hate it when people would say like, "Oh, I found it so annoying." When friends would be like, "Well, you know, you'll just know." And I was like, "Ugh, how will I just know? I'm too neurotic. I'm never just knowing. Please give me something other than that stupid advice."
2: Uh-huh.
1: And then when it was my experience, I had the same experience, which was that. I did have a visceral knowing that the, he was my person, who I really thought was never coming.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I really had been reconciled to, you know, i was a New York City woman, my, uh, you know. I was like, I'm gonna have careers, I'll have lovers, this is how it's gonna be, I'm gonna have all the money in the world, it's gonna be great. Like, I'm not doing the family thing, it's not happening. Cause really, I got to the point where I decided I would way rather be alone. Mm-hmm. I had really created such a beautiful and fun, amazing life for myself. Why do I wanna be with anyone? if they're not really bringing something special to this already awesome party, right? And I found that most of the men I was with were actually not bringing something awesome. They were wanting me to be a smaller version of myself. And I was like, I don't even know how, so I can't. Um, Anyway, back to the just knowing. I didn't know how I knew though, so I can't give you any insight into that other than anything with Vic, my husband, that's his name, Victor. Uh I would rather do anything with him then not do it with him. So we we live in the country half of the time and in New York City half the time. And he'll be like, I'm going to the dump. I'm like, okay, I'm coming. I'll stop whatever I'm doing. Like, I want to go to the dump with him still 20 years later, just because I really he's the most interesting person, still the most intriguing person I've ever known. And so he keeps me interested. So, oh, God, I'm, I forgot all of the many questions you asked me.
3: Okay. Well, I, I've been knowing to do that to people, so no worries. Um, one, you know, the Hollywood sort of idealized mm. version, like, you know, what, why, where does that even come from? Like, why do we actually buy into this idea?
1: because life is hard and because look at fairy tales yeah look at fantasies you know and i don't mean the grim fairy tales that scare the crap out of you i just mean you know in the end it's like the prince comes and saves the princess you know uh, and so i feel like we're fed this and wild the hoopla around weddings
2: mm-hmm.
1: when more than half of those people are getting divorced right this is another <laughs> right. thing that makes no sense you know what i mean mm-hmm. like let's put all of this money into weddings uh, man save that 150 grand for couples therapy and you would have a much better shot of staying together trust me Uh -uh. so i feel like the hollywood ending it's like we all want a fantasy we dream it's like a daydream yeah it's like um a fantasy it's like a, a nighttime you know it's like something that you want to happen and so i feel like it's an escape Right, Because most of the time when you have an escape, it's something good and easy and feels beautiful and you're the princess and he loves you and he chooses you and whatever. Yes. All of those stories and even like the notebook and those types of things that make it look like you've got one soulmate and that's all there is. <laughs> I also don't believe that. I really think that if you know yourself... Because what I teach in I, I have one course called the Real Love Revolution, mm-hmm. and it's for women only. Sorry, but um, but what I teach in that course is all about you know these pillars to real love, basically. And what I say is real love is that the pa- you know it's really that self love
2: uh-huh.
1: and self knowledge, self compassion, right? Mm-hmm. That is the only path to real love. Because how can you? If you're looking for someone else to fill that void for you, Uh to give you value, to make sure you're okay, to, you know, there's this abyss in most people, you know, where they're looking for whatever their, the problems from childhood are that, you know, they didn't get fixed or whatever it may be. They're looking for that person, you know, in the, in the repeating reality to tell them they're okay, to choose them, to make them be enough. But the reality is that you have to choose you, you have to know that you are valuable and and figure out that self esteem and all of that stuff is an inside job, and it's completely possible. Mm-hmm. Most people don't want to do the work to do it, and they'd rather hang on to the fantasy that if they just you know go to Soul Cycle four times a week and you know save up some money that they someday their you know their ship is going to come in with their prince on it, or princess for that matter. Yeah. Um, but I don't. It really doesn't work like that. And even though it's less sexy than the Hollywood ending. Sure the truth is if you really get curious and committed to knowing yourself and healing your childhood wounds Uh your your beloved will find you
3: wow Um, a couple other questions come from this um how have you seen it differ across cultures? Because I grew up uh, in a very, you know, like it, one of the things I, I realized just, you know, having done a lot of the work that I've done over the course of the last year, doing, you know, healing work, energy healers, like stuff that I thought in a million years was all a bunch of nonsense, mm-hmm. um, but has caused me to do a lot of deep dives and introspection in a way that I never had. Uh, mm-hmm. I started realizing I was like, wow, I'm like, my parents didn't teach me anything about courtship because they had an arranged marriage. What the hell do they know how to teach me about how to fall in love with somebody? Nothing. Yep. Um, yep. So I'm curious, what has your work shown about the difference of this in culture across cultures?
1: Oh, that's very astute. And obviously, it's your experience. So that's how you know it. But yeah, yeah it, it's very much that we we have these repeating realities. And if your parents didn't teach you, or if the way that they did it, Right. My parents dated. They were high school sweethearts, but they got pregnant and then had to get married. I was like, uh, note to self, don't do that. Like, right. really don't do that. That yeah. sucks. That's like a really hard way to start a, a marriage when you're 19 years old. That's how old my mother. They both were 19. Yeah. Like, how did they stay married for even 20 years? I have no idea. But sure. so the cultures are there. And I also the negativity of the cultures are there, too, because you have lots of pressure. hmm. Um, I know on men as well, but especially on women. Oh,
3: if you're an Indian, I would, I would much rather be a 39 year old Indian man and single than an Indian <laughs> yeah. woman at my age and single.
1: Oh yeah. It's just brutal. Like you, you're having to re teach your parents and if you have a good relationship with them, yeah, you can. Sure. But it's hard and, and you have to look in and say the, the way to figure out what you need to work on in your life. Like right now, if you were like, I don't know, someone's listening and they go, I don't know what to work on. Yes, you do. Look at your life and then write down a list of what is eluding you right now. What is it that you want that you cannot seem to make happen? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's making money so that you are very abundant and can be free financially. Maybe it's falling in love. Maybe it's your health or your wellness or your weight. I don't know what it is. But you write that list and then you start to look at there are a whole bunch of different ways that I'll, with clients that I'll attack decoding. What is it that is blocking this? Because there is always something. And sooner or later, if you're willing to do the work, you can find what it is and you can heal it. You can fix it. You can change it. So one thing that I, I do with clients is we try to identify what, if any, secondary gain they get from staying stuck. Mm-hmm. So Secondary gain, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's not primary gain, right? Going to the gym and having a six-pack, that's primary gain. Yeah. You know, secondary gain from going to the gym at night might be getting away from your wife if you're married and you don't really like her, right? So <laughs> right. secondary gain is the, un- the in- unobvious gain that you get for staying stuck. Yeah. So if you look at, I had a client who was very overweight. She really wanted to get married. She was really bummed out. She was 38, and she really had tried everything but I knew, listen, it's losing weight for most people. I'm not saying some people don't have an obesity gene and it's very, very difficult. That is true. But, but there is a reality that it's calories in and calories out, you know, like there, there is some kind of a formula that if you do these things, generally you can lose weight. And so with her, her weight was staying for a reason and I just didn't know what it was but I knew it was something because I could tell how it felt when I would talk to her. So then I, I asked the question which is what do you get to not feel, not do, not experience by staying heavy? And when it was framed that way she just burst into tears and she was, and then she went all the way back and said, you know, I realized I was assaulted when I was this age and I was not heavy and somewhere down deep I believed that the fat would be a barrier between me and another assault and so i made myself as invisible as possible this whole thing came out that she and i had never talked about and she'd been in treatment with me for over a year Mm -hmm. and so once that was revealed the secondary gain of staying stuck she got unstuck and two years later she got married
3: wow wow okay (sighs) So we spent a lot of time talking about love. Um, I want mm-hmm. to spend the rest of our time talking about this idea of boundaries because I went and you know through your boundaries quiz, and I was like, "Wow, apparently I have some issues here."
1: <laughs> Who doesn't, buddy? <laughs> so
3: let's define what you mean by boundaries and then talk about how this applies in our lives.
1: Well, boundaries, you know, Brene Brown would uh, define it. She's got a beautiful, simple definition, which is letting people know what is okay and not okay with you. Mm -hmm. I also call it, you know, letting people know what your limits are. It's also the space, the separation between you and another person, right? How comfortable are you? Um, Are you a kisser when you meet people? Like, so if you're from Spain, you probably kiss people on the cheeks when you meet them. If you are from Norway, you probably shake hands. Like there's all of these of closeness and separateness. That's what boundaries are, is making a determination about Closeness, separateness, and limits. Mm -hmm. So why is it important, you ask? Yeah. Well, Well, part of it is because we believe that people should um, read our minds Mm -hmm. and that if our spouse can't read our minds, they don't really love us. Um, We hint, we find it crude, especially women, it's considered rude and crude to speak directly especially southern like there's different cultures that really are like into this perverted perverse sort of way of communicating desires preferences
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, but we don't learn especially as women in north america we don't learn how to speak our preferences about much and that and actually we are discouraged for making a big deal, seeming that we're difficult. Don't be a complainer. Um, Don't be a whistleblower. Don't like all of of these things to like just toe the line, toe the line. But what happens is you are miserable. And so when you're, when you never are speaking your truth, I mean, let's look about it in terms of sex, shall we? When you're in a sexual relationship with someone, there are 8 million things they could do to your body. Why? wouldn't you at least try to narrow it down for them? You can do it indirectly, right? So there's all these forms of communication, indirect communication. So you can make noises that that tell them or sigh or moan or groan to tell the person that that felt good, stay there, don't move. Yeah. Or you could actually just use words, <laughs> right? And be real specific about, you know, I loved when you did whatever it is because don't you think that the person who's making love to you would really, really love to be doing the thing that you love. Yes, they would. And don't you think it's kind of mean to, you know, they may think they're giving you the special, whatever technique they've got going uh-huh. and they think it's their, you know, ace in the hole and you actually hate it. <laughs> and like, you never tell them like, oh my God, I hate when you do that friggin' thing. Yeah. It It's the thing with women is that niceness has been this virtue, quote unquote, uh-huh. that we're taught to um, value above all other things. And what it really is, is dishonesty. So when you say yes, when you want to say no, uh, are you being nice? No, you're not being nice. You're being dishonest. So we're constantly, when we can't speak our preference or draw a boundary or let people know what will and will not fly with us, if they're in a relationship with us, friends, bosses, subordinates, neighbors, whoever, we're setting everyone up to fail. Mm -hmm. When it's so easy, what I teach people in this course, I have a thing called boundary boot camp and what I teach them in this course, is um, how to basically have a proactive boundary success plan, I call it. So we are we know all the, all the places where having crappy boundaries makes miscommunication happen all the time, um, the things you don't like that people are doing in your life right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And once you get clear about that, I have a huge intake that people do where it's like okay and not okay in every part of your life what is okay and what is not okay because so much of the time with my clients i would say okay so you know what what are the things that are okay or, or not okay in your life and they would they would be able to um the okays they would be they would be like okay this 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 but when it got to the not okays they're like well i don't even know basically do i even have a right to have this list mm-hmm. and i'm like yes you do and not only do you have a right you can become masterful at drawing boundaries with ease, grace, and love. Like, that is completely possible. Mm -hmm. And it's actually really generous. There's a really successful um, book out. There's a guy who's super successful. I can't remember his name at all, but people will know who are listening. And he talks about radical transparency in his business. And, like, almost to the point of being pretty brutal. But where everyone is just balls to the wall telling the truth. So, so their social norms are very different and he's been super, super successful. This business has been, you know, the, the, um, the amount that they've sold has been crazy. It's, you know, it's used, held as a model for all these other entrepreneurs to use. But I thought that was really interesting because that's not normally the culture Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in business. That's not normally the culture socially. That's not normally the culture within relationships. Mm -hmm. So how do you do it is the question. And where are you not doing it? In your own life is what you need to know.
2: Yeah.
3: So, you know, that actually, you know, I kind of wish I'd asked this question earlier. So it's a bit out of sequence. So one of the things, you know, you mentioned Brene Brown and I, you know, we talk a lot about vulnerability and I think for men in our culture in particular, especially when it comes to relationships, we always want to make sure that we're not seen as weak and somehow, you know, balance that with being vulnerable. And I'm just curious what you have to say about that, because. Like, sometimes I wonder, you know, at moments, I'm like, ah, I think to myself, Fuck, I shouldn't have said that. Like, that's the reason mm-hmm. this person disappeared from my life. Yeah. Like, if I hadn't said that one thing, they would still be around.
1: Yeah. But but uh, obviously, you know that that's not really true, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, Because, you know, if, if, if it's, it's not like the one mistake that you make. It's like, are we aligned? Or are we not aligned? Or could we be aligned? Is that even a possibility? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that with everyone in vulnerability not just men that being voluntarily vulnerable is what I call it where you're being discerning with who you are vulnerable with mm-hmm. you know Brene talks about wholehearted people and I, and I I consider myself that because I don't I'm naturally very vulnerable you know what I mean where I'm not that afraid and I I'm also not that tender like you know I'm going to get hurt, people are going to screw me over, this is how life is, and that's okay, because most of them won't, and I won't regret it, and most of them won't use it against me, and if they do, then, you know, you live and learn, what are you going to do? <laughs> so, so, for men, I think that you have to know what your truth is, uh-huh. and it's really about what experience do you want to have, right? Do you want to be authentically sort of embodied in your life and in your relationships or not? So if you play a role, because you're like, I think that this is what I should do. I mean, listen, there are mating games. I don't care how evolved you are. We have to, there has to be some kind of mating game when we're getting to know someone. But don't you want to be able to be yourself? Um, I mean, this is for you and for anyone listening. And I remember when I was dating years ago, two things that happened that made me realize that I didn't want to like go through my life feeling ashamed what a friend had had hooked me up with someone she's like i guess i was 29 at the time and she was like he's 27 so i told him you were 27 and i was like (laughs) why the fuck did you age shame me what do you mean i'm not going i'm not going and and she's like no go i was like well i'm gonna tell him the second i sit down how old i am i was like stop projecting your age shame onto me which she totally was Uh but that's another thing that If you lie about your age, if you uh, present as someone that you're not, A, that's a ruse, then you have to keep up forever. Like, who the hell can remember lies? Like, forget (laughs) it. It's hard enough to remember real life. Like, I can't remember what lie I told. Um, Wait, and what was the other one? Oh, another one was about um, having to go out. Like, how you're going to meet this person Uh is, you know, you got to be in it to win it. One, One of my friends was saying, you know, you have to go to clubs and you have to do this. And I was like, okay, no because I don't want to meet someone in a club because I promise you someone in a club is not my forever person. No offense, but they're not <laughs> like I'm past that age. Like yeah. my guy is at home, you know, putting money in his friggin' IRA. Like he's definitely not anywhere out on a Tuesday night at 11 o'clock. So, okay. um, you know, I think, I think it's all about, do, do you want to be seen for who you are? And do you know who you are?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, th- this is the whole, the whole thing about self-love and self-knowledge. When you approve of yourself, you know, you will attract people who also approve of you. And if you have a low um, opinion of yourself, you will inevitably attract people who agree with that low opinion.
3: Mm. You mentioned these mating games. What did you mean by that?
1: That, you know, there really is a dance that we go through, even if it's short, even if it's, it's... you know, I think I knew by the second date that I really was going to marry my husband. I really did, which yeah. was so weird because I never even wanted to get married before meeting him. Uh-huh. And I was like, that's the weirdest thing in the world, but it's really true. But you still go through the process of meeting each other's friends and families and getting to know the kids and spending time at the house and all, all those things that, you know, that that is like the mating game when you're really getting to know that person Mm -hmm. and wanting to know them and before my husband i had said to my girlfriends after my last unevolved boyfriend i was like oh hey um here's the thing i promise you and just mark my words i'm never going out with another guy if he hasn't had 20 years of therapy i don't give a shit nobody nobody and they were all like well you might as well become a lesbian right now because you're never going to find a guy your age who's had 20 years of therapy there you're only someone who's been in therapy since they were 15 or whatever age you know whatever 10 and I was like no you'll you'll see that's what I'm saying so that's what I threw out there and on the second or the first date with my husband I said um so how do you feel about therapy and he was like oh I'm a big fan and I was like well how big he's like oh yeah no I've had a lot of therapy I was like well if you had to approximate how much therapy do you think you've had he's like oh I've definitely had at least 20 years (laughs) (laughs) I was like excellent we can move on to date two (laughs) okay
3: so one sort of final question around this. Um, what are your views on this sort of modern romance, like, you know, with uh, dating apps and all of this stuff? Like, what do you think of all of this?
2: Oh,
1: you know, I, I really think it's what, what I've seen, what I've observed in the past, let's say, you know, 10 years, because it's been really popular for that long. Yeah. Is that it's it's like, a, again, not a hotbed of mental health for a lot of reasons because yeah. people can be anonymous and they put up fake things and they say they're looking for relationships when they really just want to get laid and you know so i feel like it there are certain very well curated sites that can work like there used to be one called um good boyfriends.com i don't even think it exists anymore from i think her name is e. Jean. Uh-huh. she was like a columnist from from uh, Cosmo for years and it was basically your mother or your ex-girlfriend could put up a profile for guys who were like good guys (laughs) you know what I mean like you're a decent guy my mother thinks I'm a good guy I'm a good guy I just loved the concept yeah and I was like having a third party sort of be involved with that made it less I don't know like creepy people could be in there just being deceitful you know Mm mm-hmm And now it's much more like shopping online. I mean, it really is. We never, it never was like that when you're doing it in real life, going on blind dates. It doesn't happen in such a split second. So I don't know. I think we become in some ways desensitized to the whole process. Yeah. But then in other ways, I know people who've met people on dating apps and are married. So I know it's, you know, there's a percentage of people where this is how they're meeting people and it's working. But I still find that you will be attracted unconsciously. Whatever is unresolved in you,
2: uh-huh.
1: you will, whether it's on an app or on a blind date or anywhere else.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, as humans, we want to work this crap out and we will find a way to attract someone who has some mirroring wound, So we'll have an opportunity to work it out. So the more you work out your childhood crap yourself,
2: uh-huh.
1: the less you need to do it in your forever relationship. Wow.
3: Well, I think that makes a really beautiful end to our conversation. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I guess it's using free will. Like if I think about someone who's unmistakably, and if I said creative, if those are the people who are not afraid to be different, who are not afraid to differentiate, who are not afraid to lead, who are not afraid to be scorned, or not afraid to be judged, who are so driven by what they're committed to that they're willing to be in the arena and to be ridiculed, but they don't care. Hmm.
3: Wow. Um, Well, I can see now why Danielle referred you. This has been truly thought-provoking and beautiful. Where can people find out more about you and your work?
1: Come to TerryCole.com, which is T-E-R-R-I-C-O-L-E.com. And I'm on Instagram at Terry Cole. And I'm every, every social media place I can be, I am. So just put in my name and you will find me.
3: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
5: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.